Hey, we're in week three of our series, uh, Fail Forward. And in order to find our place this morning, I need to go backwards just a little bit, right? It's a super, super quick review. I know my wife's like, ah, don't hate it when you review stuff, teacher. Um, Stop it. Uh, I need to review a couple thoughts from last week. First of all, what we looked at last week is all Christianity is eschatological, meaning that all Christianity deals with the end times, right? We are looking forward to the return of Christ. Our Christianity isn't self-contained in this world that we live. This isn't all there is to it, right? We, we have that belief, we have that expectation that history is going somewhere and it's going to be a glorious ending, right? It's not a cyclical, it's not anything like that. A philosopher will try to get you to believe that. No, history is going somewhere And our Heavenly Father is directing that history. So all of Christianity really is eschatological. Um, The kingdom of God will push back and defeat the kingdom of darkness once and for all, right? We, We know this. It's a foregone conclusion. It just has to play out in real time. Anything that falls short of this expectation and hope simply isn't the gospel. We looked at this last week. And again, a huge part of this expectation and hope is that God's kingdom has already arrived. Not fully but in part, God's kingdom has already arrived. It has been inaugurated, inaugurated here on earth with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He brought in, he ushered in the culmination of all things. He ushered in the last days in his time on earth when he literally brought heaven to earth. So the, the process has already started, right? So we call this the now but the not yet aspect of God's kingdom, meaning that in Christ and with the gift of the Holy Spirit, um, we can experience aspects of heaven here and now. Not, again, not completely like Paul wrote through a glass, smoky glass. I can't remember the phrase, but a you know, cloudy glass. We can kind of see it. We can make out the shapes of the forms, but it's not crystal clear yet. So we, we, we have some promises, but not 100 not completely, but in part, right? So even now, we no longer need to be enslaved to sin. And this is something that this, this whole series, I, I'm going to be pounding on this every, every day of this series. We do not have to be enslaved to sin. We are not hopeless sinners. Sinner is not our first name. Now, there is a, an idea out there, there is a religious philosophy out there that that, that, that is our number one Characteristic: We are number one above all else sinners. I don't buy that. I don't believe the Bible presents that picture of us. We are beautiful creations that went wrong but are in the process of being repaired. We're not sinners. I just, ugh, just drives me nuts. We are, but that's not our number one identity, okay? Right? Even now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the world is being redeemed and restored. The kingdom of darkness is losing ground to the kingdom of God. This is the holiness message. The beginning of the end of sin and death has already started. It's not over. It's begun. With the gift of the Holy Spirit and resurrection power, sin now starts to lose. It had been winning, but now it's starting to lose. And this is incredible. This is incredible news. We're called to live in the new creation, and this is the difficult part. This is the tension that we're called to live in the new creation life of love and forgiveness in the midst of a world that still lives in honor and shame, that system, right? We're called to push back the boundaries of that kingdom with love and forgiveness. And again, here's the tension that we have to navigate Right? How much of the promises, how many of the promises are available now, and how many of the promises, how much of the promises do we got to wait for? Not yet. Right? The now, but not yet. 
If you have an over-realized eschatology, right, you focus on the now and, and this idea that nearly all the promises are available if you believe correctly and if you have enough faith, therefore perfection is expected. And then in the other, the other end of the spectrum, we have an under-realized eschatology where very few of the promises are available to us as we battle sin and evil in the world. Right, the focus is on the not yet, and so what that does is that relieves us of a lot of responsibilities, right? It's, not our, it's, it's, it's the devils and the demons, and they're all having this battle, and we're like just the spectators. And, and if we get too involved, we'll just mess things up, so like, you know, just stay out of the way. Now, whether one falls into one camp or the other here, whether you have an over-realized or an under-realized eschatology large, depends largely on what you believe happens at the atonement, right? There are many people that believe at the atonement that our, that our righteousness wasn't really given to us at all. It was just like pretend given to us. The righteousness of Christ was re- imputed to us. Let me tell you what that means. Let me, let me pretend to give you a million dollars, right? And for the rest of the day, we'll pretend that you're rich, We'll pretend, we'll go out, and we'll do crazy things that rich people do, but at the end of the day, you're poor, you're broke, and you know you're broke, and you will always be broke. But I'm just going to pretend you're rich. But that's not what I read in God's Word. I read in God's Word that righteousness was imparted to us. Here's the difference. I'm going to give you a million bucks. I'm not going to pretend I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a million bucks. And that's what we're told in Scripture. We're given the power of the Holy Spirit. We're given resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead can also defeat death in our own lives. Love that. Here's how that plays out in our Christian walk. Right? Believing in and expecting a resurrection power that victoriously overcomes rather than simply endures. And again, I've reading through curriculums and, and stuff like that, and I always notice very quickly the words, they kind of pop out and they tell me that this is not a optimistic faith. The, the writer of this lesson, the writer of this article, has a very pessimistic view of the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Because they use words like imputed, and they word, use words like endure. Like that's the pinnacle of our Christian experiences that we endure. I'm sorry that that's not what Scripture tells me. We don't just endure. We are given the power to victoriously overcome. Not 100%. Sin will always be there. It's part of the world we live in. We are living a new creation in the midst of the old creation, and it stymies us sometimes, right? It just sticks its foot out there, and we flop. It it happens, right? And sometimes we stick our own foot out there, and we trip ourselves. It's nobody's fault but our own, and we just kind of got to be honest, right? Now, okay, having said all that, Got you all pumped up. Woo, we can overcome. Having said all that, if some denominations in the Reformed theology lean a little bit too heavily toward an under-realized eschatology, right, that can only promise the power to endure, we Nazarenes in the Wesleyan tradition, um, we sometimes have leaned a little bit more heavily, maybe too heavily, toward the over-realized Eschatology. We, we have a reputation, right? We're the holy rollers. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. We, we, we just, we got that reputation, right? And here's, here's how many Nazarenes begin to view themselves, and maybe they still do, and, and I don't think the world was all that pleased, right? We were the children of obedience, holy and perfect. I mean, this is what I grew up with. This was the expectation of Nazarenes, right? We didn't smoke, drink, cuss, or hang out with girls that do, or something like that, or whatever it was. Right? We, we, we were Nazarenes, right? Our book of rules was like fatter than the Bible. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but 
children of obedient, holy, and perfect. How in the world do we live up to that expectation? And yet, I want to, I want to, I want to share with you this morning, I want to reclaim this. I believe this is who we are. But I think we have two problems here. Number one, the world hears or heard something different than we intended when we pitched this. And the second problem is we didn't do a very good job of pitching it if the world didn't understand it. And they're looking at us and they're looking at this language going, you all are tone deaf. That's the phrase. I came across that this week. I've heard it before, but it was in a show. Um, you're, you're out of touch, right? We Nazarenes, if we're not careful... If we're not careful, these kind of messages, this kind of wording can sound so out of touch with a world filled with hurt and pain, and they're looking at us going, right, right. So what I want to do this morning, I want to look at an amazing passage from a guy with enough street cred, right, to make the statement, to say something kind of crazy along these lines and not sound like he's out of touch or tone deaf. All right, so I want to start in 1 Peter. This is chapter 1, verse 13. Um, therefore, and that is, there's my message. Reader's note here, therefore always precedes a commandment, right? So when you're reading the New Testament, you come across that word, you have a choice. You can close your Bible and call it a day, or you can buckle down, get ready to go because you're about to be told you got to do something, right? In order to experience what you want to experience, you, you, you got to play your part. So this is coming up. You come across, again, close your Bible or, or, or dig in. In fact, there's going to be a great phrase here of what we need to do. Um, here's the deal. Um, in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, what, what Peter's about to do, he's about to make what's called an imperative statement. It's imperative that you do this. It's an imperative statement. And imperative statements are always, always, always preceded by a really good reason to do what the writer is saying. It's imperative that you do. And that's called the indicative statement. I'm going to use these two words, indicative and, and, and imperative, a whole bunch of times only because I think it'll make you remember this. Otherwise, it's just words that, that are driving me nuts as I prepared. So, the indicative always precedes the imperative. This is important because first, whether we obey or not, whether we listen and respond well or not to the imperative or the command will depend on what we know to be true or the indicative. For example, God is good, right? Additionally, without knowing what God has already done for us and in us, a command given to us will sink us. If we don't know beforehand that what's about to be told us, the instruction that we're about to be told is possible, there's a way to do it, you have a hope, you have an expectation, it's not a pie in the sky, right? This information that went before the order depends, I mean, it heavily influences whether we will obey the order, whether we believe we can even begin to obey the order will depend on what information comes before the command. Does that make sense? This is the indicative. This is how amazing God is. Therefore, do this. Don't do this. Do that. Don't do that. The indicative always, always precedes the imperative. So preceding our passage at verse 13, Peter has given his readers a huge, great number of reasons to obey what he's about to instruct them and us right after his therefore. So I'm going to back up now, right? So I'm not going to we, we got a taste of verse 13, but now we're going to go back to the beginning of this chapter. 
And it's here that the indicative preceding the imperative, right? The reason behind the instruction, and this is it, verses 3 and 4, chapter 1, 1 Peter. Listen to this. Praise be to the God and Father, I'm going to come back to that, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Right? So that's, that's really solid information to have in the back of your head as you're about to be told something that you need to be doing. Right? This, this information is critical. This tells me I can pull off whatever I'm about to be told I need to be pulling off. Because God, a heavenly father, is this this amazing, incredible, just just amazing. And as we're going to see, Peter's going to carry on this father-child relational language right throughout the letter. And it works because it's the nature of children until they get to be junior high age, somewhere around in there, that they want to imitate their parents. Right? Those of you who are young parents, um, get ready. (laughs) It's, It's coming. Right? Christians, they should delight in imitating God. Not only because he's our heavenly father, but more importantly because of everything that he's done for us. And maybe even more important than that is simply who he is. I mean, what child wouldn't want to be like a dad who is beyond loving and forgiving and grace-filled? Like, I want to be just like my dad. He's amazing. If our parents are amazing, we want to be like our parents. And this is what Peter is driving at. We have a heavenly father who is amazing, and not just a father. Right? He's a redeemer. He's, he's, he's provided all of this, this, this incredible, incredible, incredible things. And Peter continues indicating why they should heed his therefore right up to verse 13. Okay, now we're going to get to verse 13. Therefore, because God is so amazing, he's done all this stuff for you, therefore... With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace or blessings to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Literally, with minds that are alert, the phrase is girding up your loins. Girding up the loins of your mind. Do we use that phrase anymore? Hey, gird up your loins. Like, what? You'd probably get slapped if you said that in mixed company. I'm sitting here saying it in church. Here's the idea, right? Do you remember the, the... prodigal father, so it's, the story's called the prodigal son, but it's really the, a prodigal father, a father who gives and gives and gives and gives crazy, right? And he's got these long robes, and the Bible tells us that the prodigal father runs toward the son. Now, if he's got run robes, then he's, he's running like this, and he's not making any, right? He's not making a whole lot of distance a whole, with a whole lot of speed, so here's what he does. He hikes up his robes, and he pulls the back hem, pulls it around front, tucks it into his belt, now he's got like a body diaper, right? Can you picture this? So now, man, he can go, he can run. He's, he's a little undignified, but he can run, you know, and he's not, right? Okay, gird up your loins, gird up the loins of your mind, right? If you can't picture that picture, I love Lucy stomping grapes. That's the picture. I think she pulled her skirt and tucked it into her belt. Anyway, anyway, being prepared, right, the hymn with the belt and all that. It entails regular spiritual disciplines, right? This is why we go to church, not just to be seen, to be holy. We go to church, we pray, we read the Bible, we study the Bible. We do all these things in order to gird up the loins of our mind. I I got to thinking, I shared with you last week a passage from, I think, 2 Timothy, where Paul's talking about the Christian life, and it can't be a lackadaisical life. It can't just be a willy-nilly. It's a focused life. 
right? And I, and I got to thinking, sometimes I think we, we want to experience the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, but we're not diligent like the ever hardworking farmer, right? We expect victories over sin, but we're not dedicated like the athlete, or excuse me, dedicated like the professional soldier, right? And we want victorious living, we want all these promises, but we really don't want to live the life of a, an athlete, like Paul says, who is disciplined. Everything he does is, is focused. And I just wonder if we, if a lot of our battles simply because we're not diligent, we're not dedicated, we're not disciplined. Gird up the loins of your mind. Then you're going to be ready when God's Spirit goes, hey, hey. You're like, what? Yeah, that got carried away there. Because of what Jesus has already accomplished in the past, we have a rock-solid hope for the future. But you've got you to do your part, right? Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, obedient children, the Jews have a way of, this is an English way of saying something. If you were Jewish, you would have said children of obedience. They don't do L-Ys. They don't, they don't do adjectives and, and adverbs very well, right? You don't see a godly in the Jewish language. You see a man of God, right? The L-Y, I don't know why. It just doesn't work in Hebrew. So that, that's kind of what, what they do. A man of God is a godly man, right? An obedient children. Now, this is one of those phrases that in English, we, it, it, it misses the idea. We, in this passage, it sounds like we are children. He's really not talking about children. In Jewish culture, they had, it was an, an idiom, right? They called themselves the children of obedience, and they were very proud of that because they obeyed the law. A holy person a person who God loved and leaned into was somebody who obeyed the law. And the Jews, whether they did it well or not, they liked to talk about how well they obeyed the law. They were children of obedience. And this was like a badge of honor, right? This wasn't something that you were like embarrassed of or, or you got all humble about, right? This is something that you were proud of. We were children of obedience. The Old Testament, New Testament, all of the writers attest to the value and wisdom of obeying the commandments of God. The commandments are beautiful. You know, you read, and, and they're, they're wonderful, and they, they give life, and, and right? It, it's almost like um, children of obedience. It, the, the, the picture that, that, that the Jewish people and Peter's trying to paint is like obedience is the parent, right? Obedience is actually the parent, and we love we love our parents. We also love obedience because the obedience is coming from somebody who loves us. And we know that to obey somebody who loves us, things are going to go well for us. So as obedient, and again, as children of obedience. In a nutshell, I don't think there's anything wrong with being called children of obedience, right? Particularly when the one giving the commands has been so ridiculously good to us. And my guess is... If people knew how loving and forgiving God truly was, they would love to have this. They wouldn't look at us going, quit calling yourselves children of obedience. Who do you think? They'd turn around and go, I want that title. <laughs> I want to obey that God if that God will then make my life like yours. <laughs> Call me a child of obedience. That, that's not a problem at all. So what about holy and perfect? Right? 
Next verses, 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written in Leviticus. Check that out, verse 19, chapter 19, I mean, um, and, and half a dozen other places. Be holy because I am holy. Now understand something. This guy's talking holy, 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 holy. This is a man writing, I, I think you're all aware of this, the man who wrote all this stuff about obedience and holiness is, is Peter, right? You remember Peter? He's the one that experienced one of the greatest recorded for all of humankind to never forget one of the greatest failures in recorded history, right? If anyone, if you said, what's the greatest failure in human history? Peter, right? It's the, it's the one that everybody knows about, right? Peter, Peter, right? And so this is the guy that's writing about being obedient, this isn't a person who lived a charmed life, never had a problem, and saying, be obedient and you'll get everything you want from God. Right? That, that wasn't his experience. He experienced abject failure, but then he experienced a father who said, get back up. You're okay. Just dust your knees off. Move you on your way. You're fine. You're fine. This isn't some guy, again, out of touch or tone deaf in the face of the rest of suffering in humanity. Last week, we learned that neither God nor the world expects us to be perfect, right? This is a statement made by an unbeliever. They don't expect us to be perfect, but by golly, we ought to be different. And while many individually are in, immediately think of saintly people who never do anything wrong, who never fail, right? When words like holy and sanctification come up, what we learned last week, that's not, that's not what those two words mean at all. Right, to sanctify simply means to make holy or to be made holy, and holiness refers to separation or apartness. Right, if it had anything to do with behavior, I don't think God would have chosen the Israelites because they didn't behave all that well, right? And the concept of holiness continues to describe God's people in the New Testament. We are holy because we have been set apart for God's purposes, not from the world, but for his purpose, right? The Christian life is a life set apart for God's purpose, which is to be in the world, but not of the world in order to save the world. So holy is still on the table, right? I, I, I think we've, we were okay with children of obedience. I hope, I, I hope you're okay. And I think you're okay with being holy now. Are you okay with being perfect? Let's, let's tackle that one now. Perfect. I'm going to go ahead and use the most famous, probably perfect passage of all to help us here. I'm going to jump to Matthew chapter 5 here. I'm going to start in verse 43. It says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is an incredibly loving father. If you love those who love you, what order will you get, right? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. So you're no different. If you love the people who love you, you're not different, right? And they expect us to be different. But Christ is saying if we're, right, if we're acting like the rest of the world, we're no, we're no different. And then, and then the kicker, be perfect, therefore, <laughs> as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me dig into that word just a little bit here, perfect. Um, it's a Greek word that got pulled into English, so I'm gonna try to avoid all of that. 
Um, but it is a word that, that Plato, who was a Greek thinker, very famous Greek thinker, uh, the New Testament writers were greatly influenced by both Plato and um, Aristotle. Aristotle a little bit later, the, the early church fathers, but Plato for the writers of the New Testament, he was, his thinking, his way of thinking really influenced them. And so Plato had this idea, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard of this idea, that, that let's, this is the example of a chair. Out there somewhere is a perfect chair. Out there. All the things that you're sitting on are poor imitations. Lord knows a pew is a poor imitation for a chair, but that's beside the point. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what the chair looks like. It, it, you know, chair is a chair, but they're all faulty. They all, they're, they're just horrible. But, but out there somewhere, there's, there's this idea of a perfect chair. So if you're a chair maker, you're always striving, you're always trying to find that perfect form so that you can then replicate it here on earth and it won't be a poor imitation. Right, that, that was Plato. Now, luckily, his student Aristotle was a little bit more down to earth. Right, Aristotle, he became the teacher of Alexander the Great, in case you're wondering. Right, he was a little bit more down to earth and practical in his philosophy. For him, a thing is perfect, not because it's out there somewhere and we gotta find it. A thing is perfect if it fully realizes the purpose for which it was planned, designed, and made. Right, so if I have a chair sitting up here and it's got three or four legs. It's got to have at least that many, I think. And it's just all beat up. It's scarred. I mean, it's rickety. But when I sit on it, it holds me up and it doesn't collapse. Guess what? I have a perfect chair in the biblical term of perfect. I have a functional chair. It might look horrible. <laughs> People might laugh at it. But I can sit in it and watch TV and be comfortable. It's a perfect, it's a chair. It, it is and when the Bible and when Peter uses that word perfect and when Jesus Christ uses that word perfect and when the writers translated this word, what they're really driving at is not a behavioral perfect that you don't do anything wrong. It's that you are doing what you were designed to do. If you do what you were designed to do, you are perfect. A man who has reached a person, who has reached per adulthood, would be called biblically perfect because he's not a child anymore. He's no, he's no longer still developing. He's reached what he's supposed to be, right? If you have an education and you get your degree, you walk your line, you are now perfect. You have a command of your subject. or You're no longer a brand new beginner learning the basics. You're complete. You're perfect in a, in a biblical sense, in an Aristotelian, Aristotelian sense. There we go. There's that word. To put it another way, the Greek idea of perfection is functional. So then a person will be perfect if they fulfill the purpose for which they were created and sent into the world. You are perfect if you are fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. What's your purpose? Pretty clear in Genesis, right? The creation story says, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And I think one of the greatest characteristics of God is that he loves saint and sinner alike, right? It rains on the just and on the unjust. He just loves, right? No matter what, he seeks nothing but our highest good. That's just what he does. In fact, this leads me to the conclusion of our passage, say, from 1 Peter. This is chapter, verse 17. Watch this. Since you call me a father who judges, I'm going to come back to that now, a father who judges each person's work impartially, 
Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, a quick reading easily leads one to believe that this is a really, really harsh closing statement to an otherwise really, really loving father, right? Peter kind of went off the deep end here. He's, he was like painting this beautiful picture and then like, uh, don't, don't forget this, but that God's also. And, and I, think, I think we need to slow down because that's really not the picture that's being presented here. I think there's, first of all, I want to start with reverent fear, right? Let's just start with that. There's two ways to look at reverent fear. And the, the one way that I was told, this is kind of what I grew up with. I don't know if I grew up with it, but somebody told it to me as I was studying and trying to teach a lesson or something. The fear is, is a, a better word might be awe and trembling, right? Not afraid, but just fully aware of the vast difference between the creator and the created and all the implications of that vast difference, right? That's the awe and the, and the, and the, the, the trembling, the awareness of this difference, but not necessarily being afraid is kind of what I was told. But got to thinking about it. I've told you this. I used to lie awake at night. I remember just third and fourth grade, fifth grade maybe, and thinking about heaven and hell. I was just telling this, sharing this with David the other day. And I would get to the point where I couldn't pray, God, just take my life. Because I, I just, the, the stress, this poor little kid, and what I heard the preacher say, he probably didn't say it, but this is what I heard, it's like if I had one bad thought, I was going to burn in hell if I didn't wake up in the morning. I was, just, I, I was, I was done. I was toast. Right? There was, in my mind, there was no conceivable way that I could make it through this lifetime without being in and up toast. I just I couldn't. And so I would lay there awake at night, and I would, I would be so freaked out that I would, I would start crying like, Lord, like, uh, and I, I can't pray that I'll die because that'll just rush the decision. I'm going to go one way or the other. And so I begin to pray, Lord, I just wish I'd never been born. Right? What kind of hope is that? What, what? But this is kind of my mindset growing up is like, this is just, this is too much. This is blowing me away. This is too much responsibility to put on a little kid. And it's freaking a little kid out. It's reverent fear. So I got to thinking about that. And that, that fear is real. That had not, I was not in awe of God at all. I was scared to death of God. And what Peter seems to be saying here is it's okay to recognize that God does have expectations. Um, but what he seems to be saying in this passage is that You can go to the Father because the Father in heaven is our judge. Let me put it a different way. The judge in heaven is actually our Father. Right? We have a Father who's a judge, not a judge who happens to be a Father. And, and that's a big, 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 big difference. In Jewish society, the Father far outweighs the judge in nearly all matters. And it's simply because the Father's function is to command and teach where the judge he only comes in afterwards, punishes and rewards the teaching. You know, did, did the kid get it? Well, I'm going to punish him or reward. There's not much power in the reward and the punisher, but there's tremendous power and responsibility in the Father. In effect, I think what Peter is telling us 
is that we need to sometimes have a talk with our Heavenly Father and not go stand before the judge. And I think the world and us in the backs of our minds, we, uh, we envision ourselves going and standing before a judge. Therefore, all we think about is, am I going to be punished or rewarded? But when you think about the fact that you're standing in front of your Heavenly Father, who is a completely impartial judge, he, he gets it, he understands. And this father is, this judge is not one to be afraid of. It's actually one to embrace and, and move toward knowing that instead of a punishment, we're going to get further instruction. We're going to be picked up. We're going to get a little kiss on our forehead or on our knee or whatever. Our heavenly father, that's what he's going to do. Yeah, we got this idea, oh, I got go, to go see the judge. Peter's saying, no, no, man, you got to go. You got to go talk to dad. Dad will make everything okay again. Go talk to dad, Abba Father. When I was little, um, playing football out in the street, and I mean, we lived on a cul-de-sac, and this guy at the end of the street had a classic car, it was like a 1940-something, I would imagine. I was in fourth grade, I really don't have a clue. Um, we were playing football, me and three or four of my buddies and I threw it, and it hit the antenna of this really old classic car. And I kid you not, in, before my very eyes, the antenna ripped out of the metal. The metal, the antenna's on the ground, and, I, and, and I'm, my friends are gone. <laughs> they all ran. And so I took off running too. I ran straight to my house and I, I'm chugging, I'm looking back. And I see the curtains part of that house. And it's like, oh man. Turned around, I walked back, knocked on the door. I didn't say anything to my mom and dad. I don't think I even told them years later. I knocked on the door. I said, I, we were playing football and I, I threw a football and I, that's probably going to be pretty expensive. I'm, I'm sorry. What do I, what do you got to do? What do I got to do? He's like, he just looked at me. He says, well, first of all, I'm very proud of you. You, you came back. I know you saw me. <laughs> and so if I'm really honest, I was more concerned about reward and punishment instead of love and forgiveness, right? I was still in that world. You know, I would eventually mature up. Um, but he just, he, he, he said, I'm proud of you. And I'm going to be having a talk with those other boys' fathers. <sighs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> I, and I don't know what God was doing, if he was orchestrating, you know, just a little lesson in my life that if I wanted to be a fully mature follower of Jesus Christ, if I wanted to be entirely sanctified, I needed to be honest when I messed up. I needed to own it, and I needed to quickly fix it. My dad used to call it restitution. It was an old Nazarene term. I don't hear it a whole lot of times, but, boy, my dad swore by it. If you did something wrong, you didn't do it wrong to God. You did it to somebody, and that means you went down to that person and you made it right. Right? You didn't just ask God for forgiveness. You had to go to the person. That, that's kind of gone by the wayside in, in our culture, this restitution idea. It's become almost a legal term. But it, for my dad, it was very spiritual. I was still obviously straddled between the two worlds of punishment and reward and, and love and forgiveness. Right? But being obedient entails being honest when we fail, right? Owning up to it. This is called adulting, right? I know we don't like to adult. My wife hates adulting. 
right? Got to, got to call the insurance, got to call the doctor, got to call this person because they messed up this, and it's just adulting. You see, we have a choice. We can, we can do what I have tended to do, is just deny the problem and put my head in the sand and hope it'll go away. That's kind of my modus operandi, and I, I admit that, and I'm working on it. Um, but really, one of the greatest hallmarks of being an adult is the ability to face up to our mistakes, ability to face up to difficult situations and just hope they don't go away. That's adulting. And the fact of the matter is, being entirely sanctified, that, that's kind of spiritual adulting. This simply means when we mess up, which we will, we immediately make amends. We fess up. We own up to it. Meanwhile, again, knowing this topic that I, that I was speaking on, Terry Cummings, he sent me this. Terry, he's right there. In this lifetime, failure is never final and success is never complete. And we know this to be true because we're living in the now but not yet part of history, right? We, we, we recognize this and, and this is the tension, but we're okay with it. Meaning that while sin still exists in the world, we don't have to be enslaved to it. It doesn't have to own us. And as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we must either embrace who we are, children of obedience, holy and perfect, embrace it, explain it a little bit better to your friends. The only other option we have is to stick our heads in the sand. I don't think that's an option. We are children of obedience. We are holy and perfect. Therefore, we can do what God has called us to do. Right? There's the, imper the indicative and, and the imperative. We can do what God has called us to do. Would you bow your heads? Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for Peter, for his abject failure, and for the recording of forgiveness and love, and the recording of the rest of his story and how he dealt with that failure. So, Father, again, draw us to some of these people in your word. Let us examine some of their lives just a bit more closely and not race through them and, and see that they're just like us. They're not perfect. They're not saints that don't do anything wrong. But they're just like us. And Father, we have this, this record your word, that when they did things wrong and they turned to you, things worked out. You never stopped loving them. So, Father, that's the hope that we have. That's that, those are the facts on the ground. And so, Father, forgive us if we have just a little bit of an over-realized eschatology. We can't help it. You are so full of love. Heavenly Father, that you sent your Son and then left your Spirit. We have everything we need. Thank you, Father, for all of these things. Heavenly Father, in your Son's name I pray. Amen.